Friends, as we make our ways back to our seats, I just want to remind you of the, uh, the fall series of messages uh, that will take us throughout the fall, through Thanksgiving season, and right up to the Advent season. It's hard to believe, but uh, that's not very far away as well. Uh, if you were here last week, you realize that I'm focusing on questions. Questions. Oftentimes, we think of a teacher asking questions, and Jesus is one of the greatest teachers. He loved to ask questions. Not just yes or no questions, but questions that cause us to think. You know, asking questions has a long a long history in education. As I remember uh, my early college years, we had to read a lot of uh, Plato, some of Plato's dialogues. And Plato, as the, the name indicates, he, he wrote in the form of dialogues. His teacher, Socrates, loved to teach by asking questions. And they would form a, a thesis, an understanding, but then they would question it to see if it would hold up to reasoning. And we call that the Socratic method, uh, to really ask questions, to really dig in and investigate. But I know as a young person, we talked about children last week, and at certain ages, peaking with a, you know, the, the people who ask the most questions in the world are little girls about age four. Little boys aren't far behind, but they're, they're inquisitive. They're trying to make sense of the world, and they ask question after question after question until the parents are almost worn out. And I remember my mom retreated to the last bastion of all parents. Her answer was, because. <laughs> well, why? Because. Well, why? Because. And I would have to just settle with that. But, you know, we ask a lot of questions to gain understanding and to gain knowledge. We're questioning. We're inquisitive. But as we look at the life of Christ and his method of teaching, we don't see that. Jesus wasn't asking questions because he didn't know the answer. His questions showed wisdom and caused us to think about a subject for ourselves. As we mentioned last week, if you look and just count direct questions, and I said it's kind of hard to know exactly how many questions Jesus asked as recorded in the Bible, because remember, the early Greek text of the New Testament, it had no punctuation. There are no question marks. There's no exclamation points. There's no commas. There's no capital or small letters, because early Greek was all written in capitals, called unsealed Greek. And there's not even spaces between the words, if you can imagine. So you really have to work at reading some of these. And so some things can, is that a statement or is it a question? But uh, because the general questions are over 300 that Jesus asked, but if you take away the repetition between the Gospels, it's about 150, somewhere in the neighborhood of 150 important leading questions. Now, during this fall season, we're going to look at seven questions and then three answers. Direct answers to questions from Jesus were a rarity. There's only really three direct answers he gives and then ten in total where he answers a question. Most often when you question Jesus, what did you get in return? A question. <laughs> he would answer with a question. Well, today's question speaks to the issue of abandonment abandoned jesus asks a question that's all about feeling abandoned abandoned the word abandoned doesn't come up in this passage it's only the word forsaken but jesus 
was speaking of an emotional feeling that many people can relate to, feeling lost, feeling forsaken, feeling abandoned. Jesus, as we today come to the Lord's table, we talk about his suffering for us on the cross. And oftentimes we focus on the physical suffering, the physical aspect, because it was front and center. But we also have to remember that there was the emotional, the mental anguish, and the spiritual abandonment that Christ experienced on our behalf. The question itself as we come to it today, the question is, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? We find Jesus asking that question in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark. I'll read the question for us today from the Gospel of Mark. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One of the most powerful questions Jesus ever asks. But again, I point to it and I say, why did he ask it? Did he not know the answer? Was he seeking to gain some information as he cried out to God in his pain as he hung on the cross? Well, we know he knew exactly what was happening. He'd asked a question just the night before. He said, Father, if it's possible, is there any way that this cup of suffering can pass by? But not my will, your will be done. He knew what lay in store for him. He knew the price of sin that would need to be paid. And out of his great love for us, he was willing to pay it. Now, it's interesting as you look at that question, it's not on the screen, but to continue, he asked the question and the people didn't seem to understand what he was saying. Verse 35, not on the screen, says, when some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Eloi, Eloi, lama salaktani. It says one of the few places what Jesus actually says. The language he's speaking is Hebrew. Now we say, well, why didn't they understand it? Well, for one reason, for the last 400 years, the Jews primarily spoke not Hebrew, but Aramaic. This was the language of Babylon. This is a Semitic language, a kissing cousin of Hebrew, but it's a different language. They spoke in captivity, and when they returned to the promised land after 70 years or more, they were speaking Aramaic. And not only did people speak Aramaic, but Hebrew, that became the language of the priests. The great Torah scrolls were still written in Hebrew, but the normal person wouldn't be able to read it. In fact, we have many uh, writings on papyrus and scrolls that are Aramaic translations of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. We call them Aramaic Targums, kind of a funny name. But it showed that the people of Jesus' time didn't fully comprehend Hebrew. And so when they heard Jesus crying out, Eloi, my God, they thought he was calling for Elijah. It's fascinating. We have the very words of Christ recorded for us here. And in that cry, we see suffering. 
The physical suffering is apparent to everyone, but there was a feeling, something going on in the heart of Jesus as he cried out, Why have you forsaken me? That word can equally be translated, Why have you abandoned me? Why have you left me? Why have you deserted me? Now, I've told the story of losing our son Luke in West Edmonton Mall once. You know, I I could go on. I have many stories of losing children over the times. Kind of speaks a bit to my inattention. The funniest that I've shared is we were sitting down at Sunday dinner. It was always our, our, we had a special dinner we always ate when the boys were young down in Medicine Hat all those years. We would have chicken, honey mustard chicken over rice. It was wonderful. A side of peas. I can taste it now. I'm making myself hungry just talking about it. But we sat down around the table and we looked around. Who wants to pray today? Where's Matthew? Matthew's not sitting down. Matthew's missing lunch. Where's Matthew? Matthew was left at church. We forgot him and we left him. We have reasons. We left in separate cars, and I went much earlier, and Faye and the kids came, and then we all thought the other ones had Matthew. It's a lot like Joseph and Mary leaving Jesus when he's 12 years old in the temple. We weren't as good a parents as Joseph and Mary, obviously. Close, but not quite. But but Matthew, he felt abandoned. We talked to him. And he's a funny little guy, you know, because he'll remember everything bad that ever happened to him. And, you know, He can bring that up at the drop of a hat. It's quite comical. But that feeling of abandonment, have you ever felt lost, left behind, forgotten? Jesus on the cross shared from his heart as he cried to his father, why have you abandoned me? I'm all alone here, suffering. The suffering of Christ. That's what's front and center course this is a a picture and it's kind of blurred the picture before you because it's from a movie of jesus suffering another word for suffering in english an old word is passion this movie in 2004 mel gibson made a powerful film called the passion of the christ powerful and gruesome it was so gory and so realistic as to the way the romans actually scourged and tortured and crucified people that the movie, a religious film based on the Bible, was rated R. It was a hard watch. And I don't think I've watched it in a number of years. Over the years, as you watch the movie, it's not a historical movie because it mixes the biblical story of the suffering of Jesus with many of the medieval myths that grew up in the Catholic Church became important to them. You know, it has portions of the rosary, the story of St. Veronica. All of these things are mixed in to the movie, and it's very uh, meaningful to people as they watch it that way as as a, a devotional thing. But the realistic part of the movie is the physical suffering of Jesus. I remember once taking uh, the Medicine Hat Tigers hockey game to the movie, the whole team. As the chaplain, I took them to show. We've been talking about Jesus throughout our chapel times with the Tigers every Monday, but the movie came out, we took the whole team. It was fascinating to watch these major junior hockey players watching this film, and I wanted to know what they thought about it. Were they confused? It was a confusing movie because all the characters spoke the original languages. Do you remember? They spoke Aramaic, there was Hebrew, there was Latin from the Roman soldiers, and only at the last minute they add subtitles. Mel Gibson wanted the movie made without subtitles, and you just had to know the story to follow along. But the hockey players, 
They were quite impressed. I was kind of shocked by this. They really appreciated Jesus' suffering because high levels of sports, those people endure and they play through a lot of injuries and they could not believe how something was motivating him to such an extent that he was willing to go through that incredible level of physical suffering. They said something is going on inside of that man. He's committed to something. He's loyal to something or he loves something that's causing him to go through that suffering. And opened the door for me able to share that he did. He was suffering for us. It's interesting to note, though, what Jesus was doing when he asked this question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's asking the question because Jesus, we often forget, is quoting Scripture. He is quoting Psalm chapter 22. As you look at Psalm 22, verse 1, you see these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Remember, before we put chapters and verse numbers in our Bibles, Old Testament, New Testament, the only way for God's people in the uh, New Testament times to quote a passage is they had committed it to memory and they would tell you the first line of a passage. And you were expected to know what followed. Jesus is quoting Psalm 22 to them. This is a messianic psalm. It was written by King David during a time of suffering, and much of that psalm, the teachers over the years realized, it didn't apply to David's life. But it applies perfectly to a messianic, a savior figure who's suffering. Suffering on a cross. It's astounding. And so Jesus, he quotes this to show to those around him that he is doing this in fulfillment of prophetic word. He is the suffering servant. He is the Messiah. For if you look down a little further in Psalm 22, you come across verses like verse 14 and following. Think of Jesus who cried out, I thirst on the cross. We read, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and they cast lots for my clothing. It's incredible. An accurate prophecy of Jesus' crucifixion from the pen of King David a thousand years earlier. The suffering of the Christ. Jesus tells us through this question that he is the Christ. He is the anointed one. He is the Savior. But we look at that and we often ask the question, as the Medicine Hat Tigers did all those years ago, and as little kids have enshrined around the world, we look at it and we say, why? Why would God's Son, precious Lamb, innocent, the only human who's ever lived a full life and never committed a sin, never done, said, or thought anything out of God's good and perfect will, why did He have to suffer so terribly on the cross. 
It's us. We are the reason. We're the reason. If it had only been you who'd ever sinned, Jesus would have taken your place on the cross. You are the reason he hung there. You are the reason that he stayed the course. You are the reason that he didn't give up. He didn't call 10,000 angels to rescue him. He could have, but he didn't. We're the reason. We think of that song penned by Avalon back in the 80s and made popular by the Christian singer David Meese. We are the reason that he gave his life. We are the reason he suffered and died. Throughout the Old Testament, the sacrificial system was an object lesson to prepare us for the death of Jesus. We know that the blood of bulls and goats cannot atone for the sin of men, women, and young people, and yet it prepared us to understand that the sin of the sinner, the guilty, if it's given to the truly innocent, the innocent can pay for it. It was that teaching of atonement and the transference of sin, the turning aside of God's wrath, the old-fashioned word propitiation, the Old Testament prepared us to understand that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul writes, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus on the cross was that true sacrifice. The only innocent one, fully God, fully human, took your sin and mine, the totality of mankind's sin, past, present, and future, was transferred to him. And we know from Scripture the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from a holy God who loves us. And Jesus paid the price for us. He was willing to do that. Again, Galatians says that sin is a curse. A cursed means to be abandoned and separated from the God who loves us. It says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And he hung on the wood cross for us. He became a curse and took our punishment. It's made so clear for us in passages like Isaiah 53. Beautiful, again, picture of the suffering servant. We're told in Isaiah 53, 4, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. By his wounds, we are healed. There was a wonderful pastor in the 1600s, born 1608, died 1680. His name was Thomas Brooks. Or Thomas, uh, bring, up this, bring up the quote. There we are, Thomas Brooks. Not a great picture of him. It was a wood cutting. 
He was not only Cambridge trained, but he pastored throughout his career in London. Later in his life, he was persecuted because when they brought in the English common book of prayer and so forth, he was a dissenter and he would teach God's word from the Bible rather than from approved sources from the church in England. That's after the king was restored. He fell afoul of the, of the, uh, the, the powers that be. And he was a Puritan by thought and by action focused on God's holiness and living a right, a right life. And his books still are read today. Thomas Brooks wrote of Jesus' atonement for us. He says, Our sins are debts that none can pay but Christ. It is not our tears, but his blood. It's not our sighs, but his sufferings that can testify for our sins. Christ must pay all, or we are prisoners forever. Slaves and prisoners of sin and death. Abandoned, cursed, and separated from God. But when we see Jesus cry out as we would have, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? We know that our answer would be because of our sin. And that's the answer with Christ as well. He has taken your sin and mine to the cross. It's appropriate that passage in Mark and Matthew begins that at the sixth hour, that's noon, high noon, the sunniest, hottest part of the day, at noon, the sun turned off its light. And for three hours as Jesus took your sin and mine upon the cross, the world was dark. And he hung in darkness and silence as God, his Father, the three of one, from eternity to eternity, at the only time ever in existence, God and His Son were separated. And His back was turned upon the sin of mankind. A holy God could not be in the presence of sin. And Jesus was alone, truly alone, on the cross as He paid our debt in full. And so friends, as we come to the As we come to the table today, we celebrate the finished work of Christ. Some churches believe that the communion time is a a repetition, a continuation of the suffering of Christ, that his real flesh and real blood are shed all over again. But this is far from what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Jesus was sacrificed once for all. And because of that, he, our great high priest, is far above human priests that we see in human religious activity. He is the perfect high priest. Not only did he make the sacrifice for us, but he was willing to be the sacrifice for us. His last words recorded in the Gospel of John is the Greek word tetelestoi, which means it is finished. Work is complete. Tools down. He's finished it. Jesus finished the work of salvation. You cannot earn salvation. It's already been paid for. You can accept it, God's grace, by faith. The book of Hebrews makes this very clear. Remember, Hebrews is written to a group of Jewish Christians who are under such persecution that they they want to just put their faith in Jesus on hold and go back just to being Jews again. They say it was just so much easier. Our families weren't divided. We hadn't lost jobs. We hadn't lost property. We hadn't shed our blood. 
the author of Hebrews tells us again and again why Jesus is superior as the fulfillment of the Hebrew Bible, as fulfillment of the prophecies, the promises. We can't go back just for the promise. We have to have the fulfillment in Christ. And as all of the priests and all the Old Testament sacrifices pointed toward the sacrifice of Jesus, so Jesus now, we look back at it as a completed work. Speaking of he as a superior priest that meets our needs, the author of Hebrews begins in chapter 7, verse 26. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. It is finished. Nothing can be added to it. My good works, those are like filthy rags compared to Jesus' holiness. All we can do is receive it and grow in it and share the good news with others. It is finished. And you know, isn't it interesting that Psalm 22 As you read to the end of it, it ends after the suffering of the suffering servant, the Messiah. It ends with interesting words of victory. It says that the suffering of Jesus will be proclaimed for generations to come. He will be praised for it. We read that posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. Isn't that fascinating? It ends on a note of victory and finality. It is finished. The sacrifice has been made. So friends, as you come to the table... By Jesus' invitation. That's why we call it the Lord's table. He is the host. And we recognize that He's finished the work for us. The Bible says, as Paul uh, encouraged us just recently, the Bible recognizes that as we live in this time, uh, this age between ages, we struggle between flesh and spirit. But as Apostle Paul says in his, in his epistle, if any has sinned, We have one who has paid the price, an intercessor. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful. He's just. He'll forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, for the work of salvation is finished. This thought is brought out beautifully by Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who talked about Satan lying to Christians and then believing that somehow they continue to bear guilt. How can we? Look what Spurgeon says. As to my sin, I hear its harsh accusings no more when I hear Jesus cry, Why hast thou forsaken me? I know that I deserve the deepest hell at the hand of God's vengeance, but I am not afraid. He will never forsake me, for he forsook his son on my behalf. I shall not suffer for my sin, for Jesus has suffered to the full in my place. It is finished. 
And now, friends, as we come to the table, let us come to the Lord in celebration of his love for us and the finished work of salvation. As we do that, let's prepare our hearts. Scripture says we need to prepare our hearts as we come to examine our hearts to see if there's anything keeping us from coming to the table, perhaps unconfessed sin, perhaps a relationship that isn't as it should be. We want nothing to hinder us from celebrating the salvation we have in Christ. So let's spend a time together in prayer. And as we do so, I'll invite the servers to join me at the front. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we look to the cross, sometimes it's difficult. Lord, as that motion picture portrayed almost 20 years ago, the incredible brutality, the physical suffering that Jesus endured. Lord, we look at that and we say, why? What could cause him to go through such suffering? What kept him on the cross? It was more than those nails, for he was God himself. And then, Lord, you reveal to us the answer in your word. It was love. It was your love for us. Lord, today we recognize the atonement, the price paid, the transference of guilt from the guilty to the innocent, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Lord, help us to live in that joy and that freedom, knowing that, Lord, in this lifetime, we will not be perfect, but one day we will be like Jesus and see him face to face. Until that day, Lord, help us to keep short accounts with you, to examine our hearts, to see if there be any hurtful thing in them that hurts our relationship with you or those around us. And to come quickly to you, Lord, to confess it and find restoration for that sin, whatever it may be, has been paid for on the cross. Lord, we thank you for that. And now we come, Lord, to the table to celebrate the love of Christ. I read, as we often do, from Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This time as we come together to share the bread which recalls to our hearts and minds Jesus' body given for us on the cross, I'll call upon Paul to give thanks.
On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And when he had taken bread, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We're told that after supper, he took the cup. The cup recalls to our hearts and minds the blood of Jesus shed for the forgiveness of our sin. I'll call upon Lance to give thanks for the cup. Lord, we just want to thank you for this gift that we can never repay. Um, You came down willingly to die for our sins, Lord, and um, for the very people that hung you there. And we just want to say thank you. Thank you for your shed blood. After supper, Jesus took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Amen. Friends, let's stand together as we're dismissed from this place of worship to our places of life and ministry. Let's stand and pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news. The good news, Father, it's built on the bad news that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But Lord, we thank you for the good news that we have life in Christ through his sacrifice for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Lord, we thank you for that. May we take that good news with us, live in the freedom of, of that life every day, and share our hope with those around us. We pray all of this in Jesus' loving name. Amen. You are dismissed.